Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Adult life, with all its schedules and responsibilities, can turn into a kind of library of locked boxes. The ones we open every day sit on a shelf at eye level, their keys clipped to a carabiner at our waist, set the alarm, pack a gym bag, pick up milk for the kids. But on the lower shelves and in the dusty back rooms, there's an ominous jumble of odd-shaped containers. They hold the stories that don't fit so neatly into the skin we've decided to live in. Maybe we've misplaced the keys, or maybe we've deliberately lost them. My guest today keeps all the keys close at hand. In his stories and graphic novels, worlds collide, and, as the fairy Ariel puts it in Shakespeare's Tempest, they suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. The walls of reality are permeable, and dangerous magic is always seeping through. Neil Gaiman is the author of the Sandman graphic novels, The Graveyard Book, Coraline, American Gods, and many other wonderful things. His latest is a marvelous retelling of Norse mythology, with most of the nasty bits left in. Welcome to Think Again, Neil. Thank you so much. So I'm very glad to have you here. And I think it's probably just going to make sense if we clear the air right now and say that I'm one of probably one of those many annoying fanboys that you meet all the time. I was obsessed with Sandman back in college. And thanks for that. It totally changed the way I think about stories and writing. You are so welcome. It, it's never annoying. You would think it would get annoying and instead it's it's always nice, you know. There's, there's <laughs> when you're writing, you're writing on your own, and you're making stuff up, and it's just you in a room, and people coming up to you and saying thank you and telling you that the story has meant something to them it never gets old. It never loses its luster. It's always wonderful to hear. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, I suppose. I mean, you write because there's something in you that wants to say something to other people, but you write mostly alone in your writer cave. Yeah. And you're, you're making stuff up um, that has personal relevance to you. And if you're doing it right, it will extend beyond that. I, I did an interview the other day about Coraline, the children's book that I right. had published back in 2002, because it's being... Uh, turned into an opera right now by the Royal Opera in the oh, UK. Wow. And they were asking huge general questions about Coraline. And I had to sort of say, well, yes, all of these things you're saying are true, but I wrote it for my daughters. Hmm. I wrote it, I didn't know if it was going to get published. I just wanted to write a book that would tell them what I knew about bravery, what I knew about um, you know, all of the stuff that I'd learned, the idea that being brave doesn't mean you're not scared. Being brave means you're absolutely terrified and you do the right thing anyway. Right. And so I didn't do that going, ah, 20 something years from now, I will have adult women coming up to me <laughs> in tears telling me that Caroline was the book that got them through abuse or got them through bad places or got them through the death of a parent or whatever. And that wasn't there in my head when I wrote it. I wrote it as a gift for my daughters. Do you feel like you've been able to do that consistently all the way through? Do you feel like everything you've been able to write or the vast majority of it has come out of that kind of place? I mean, that you've had either the professional wherewithal to choose projects that allowed you to do that 
and or the closeness to your heart to make those decisions in a way that you've been happy with? I think I'm really lucky. I've had a kind of anti-career. <laughs> you know, in order to have a proper career as a writer, what you're meant to do is find the thing that you are good at or that people are interested in and then just do more of that forever. And right. you, you know, you happen to write a doctor nurse romance and people <laughs> like it and you then write 400 doctor nurse romances, whatever, and that's what you're meant to do. Um, in my case, I've been so all over the place from the beginning, which may actually have a lot to do with having started out in comics, right. which is a medium that people mistake for a genre. Right. Okay. Can you say a little more about what that means? Sure. Yeah. So comics is simply a medium. It's like prose. It's like film. It, it's, it's a vase that you can pour any kind of liquid into. Right. But people think of comics as a, as a genre. Right. As, a, as, as it's just this one thing. So I got very spoiled in Sandman. If I wanted to do a contemporary thriller or, or horror, I could do it. If I wanted to do a historical story, if I wanted to do high fantasy or low fantasy or folktale or Shakespearean drama, whatever, right. I could do it. And because it was all comics, people just assumed it was all the same thing. And I think walking away from Sandman when it was done just left me with the idea that the most important thing for a creative writer is to have the freedom, the creative freedom, to do whatever you want to do next. When, when American Gods first came out in about 2001, I got a letter from an editor in the UK about how they were prepared to pay an ridiculous amount of money for me in the UK um, to become their author, but that obviously I would have to write more books like American Gods mm -hmm. under their guidance to get a little more commercial and take out the rough edges. And I looked at it and go, no, the rough edges are the bits that I love. Mm -hmm. and, and, why, and I've already written that book. And maybe in 15 years, 20 years, I'll go back and do a sequel. But I have no desire to keep writing that book for the rest of my life. I would stop writing. This is, the joy for me is I can do anything. The, I, I love the fact that in my head right now, I'm working on an adult novel. And when that's done, I want to write a very silly book about frogs in Central Park <laughs> for kids. And Like a picture book? Or... It'll be a, a sort of a chapter picture book. Uh -huh. It'll definitely have, it needs pictures. Um, but it'll be a sort of a chapter book for kids, the adventures of, of a bunch of frogs having to... Is it that your brain is just populated by stories that you want to write? Or are there, are there periods when there is not a story and, then, and, and yet your personality and temperament are such that you just... That doesn't happen. I'm, by the way, There's I'm totally a, psychologically outing myself. I'm the guy that's going to sit there going, oh, my God, what do I do next? Which you're always allowed to do. <laughs> um, I've, I've always got a holding pattern hmm. of at least five things that I would love to do next. Right. And the question is, which one's going to get, which one's going to land right. first? You know, there's, there's an alternate universe that I could look back on in which I wrote all the novels that I decided <laughs> not to write or wasn't ready for or seemed like a bad idea the week that I was ready to start or whatever. And I'm sure I would be 
just as successful, perhaps more so, but I like the one that I'm in. So how do you, how do you pick and choose among them? Is it like intuitive, just kind of, this is what I'm going to do now? Or Mostly, I think it's, it's writing a book is such an enormous commitment mm. of time and emotion. You know, if I don't encourage people to become writers. I will happily give advice to anybody who says, okay, I, I want to be a writer. What do I do? I will give you all the advice. But the truth is, if you can find another job and you'd be happier doing that other job, go do that other job. Writing is a weird, lonely, <laughs> slightly odd profession. Um, you know, you're sitting in a room pretending to be lots of people that you're not and, uh, and you're all alone. And you're trying to make yourself excited and make yourself cry and pretending to yourself that you don't know what happens next or really not knowing what happens next. Um, <laughs> and this is going to go on for week after week and for month after month until this thing is done. And then somehow, you know, two years worth of work is going to produce this thing that most people can read in a day. Right. Um, right. It's, it's a very strange profession, but it's a really interesting one and one that I love. But if you can do something else, why not? I guess the thing is about the people who love it, and you can correct me uh, if your experience is different, is that writing or, I don't know, making art of any kind is the only place where they know how to surprise themselves, where they know how to kind of go into a space where they don't know what's going to happen and then be like, holy crap, wow, that happened. I, it was so interesting. I, I was, I gave a talk yesterday. I was interviewed by Michael Shabon mm. um, up at Perches at SUNY. And um, afterwards I did a little signing and talked to all the students. And one of them said, you know, she said, I, I keep right starting novels and I get halfway through and then the characters, it, it doesn't seem to be going where I planned. Mm. So I abandon it. And I start a new one. What should I do? And I said, you should follow it to the end. Mm. You know, it's a living thing. It, it's okay for them not to go where you plan. Find out where it's going to go. Yeah. Think of it. It's, it's like you planted a seed and you're there watering it every day and you're there tending it. But you, you don't know what the flowers are going to look like until right. you actually get there. Do you, I mean, do you write that way at the level of plot? Because it's always seemed to me that what happens in your stories is fairly tight and crystalline. You know, I can think of other literary writers who seem to meander about more in character digressions and scenery and whatever. But when you're making plot, is that emerging for you as well as you're writing? Or is it kind of fully formed? No, plot and, emerges. Yeah. I mean, a, a plot, good plot should emerge. Um for me, the process of writing a book is probably closest to saying, I am in New York right now. <laughs> I'm going to hitchhike to L.A. <laughs> and you know a bunch of things that are going to happen. Right. You know the general shape of the journey. You don't know every incident that will happen on the way. You don't really know where you're going to wind up at the end. And the only thing that will become certain is when the journey is over and you look back at it, it will feel inevitable. You know, I like to start a novel knowing more than the reader does about what is going to happen. Yet, there's always a point where I'll go and then stuff happens. Right. And, <laughs> and if I've plotted out the stuff that's going to happen, it's still 
going to happen in its own way and ignore the plot. I remember writing right. Anansi Boys years and years ago and loving writing it. I was, I was having the time of my life and then suddenly one of the characters murdered another. And I went, well, hang on, this is, this was a, this is a good-natured farce. <laughs> How can I have a good-natured farce in which one of these characters has murdered another? And this is, it's not a good thing to have happened. It's a bad thing. And we liked her, and I didn't know this was going to happen. <laughs> and I stopped writing for a couple of months while I just thought about <laughs> what did this mean? What was going to happen next? Uh, that all of these things that I'd expected were going to happen in the book in terms of where the action was located, it was all going to be located in the same place that I thought it was going to be. But now I had these wild elements that I didn't know about. And I had a bad guy who was an awful lot badder than I expected. <laughs> and I mean, there was something in there in you that insisted on murdering that character and then dealing with the aftermath rather than saying, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, it was one of those things where I went, hang on, you know, she's going up in an elevator. If she goes and talks to him, he will kill her, I, which hadn't occurred to me. I thought, I thought, oh, I'm just going to increase the, the weirdness of this plot by having her confront him, and that'll be fun, and I wonder what will happen. And it's like, oh, okay, that's what's going to happen. Um, and in order for it all to work, I'm genuinely never certain, and I don't, almost don't think it matters whether I somehow know it and I'm hiding it from myself mm. or right. I'm, I'm putting the blocks there and when I get to the final place, because humans are pattern-making creatures, we find patterns and we make patterns, I suddenly go, oh, hang on, you know, I can link that little dot over there and that little moon-shaped thing over there, and if I put, draw a line between them, it suddenly becomes a beautiful giant pattern. I'd miss that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know, but it's okay not to know. You've done a lot of collaborating, like from the from the comics where you were, where other people were drawing them, or Dave McKeon's amazing covers, um, to I guess Neverwhere started its life as a TV series mm -hmm. and then became a novel. And there's something you say in the preface of 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 that where you're talking about how the TV series, you're like it's a uh, great in all of these ways, but it kept not being the thing that I wanted to share with people. And so I guess I wanted to ask you about that, like how, you know, in all of these collaborations, you know, how you kind of manage that push-pull, if it even is a push-pull, with like what the story you want to tell and then all these other voices and producers and blah, 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 given how kind of close and personal the work is for you. Um, that was like a monologue. That was. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what the answer is. Um, and I'm not coming up with anything simple other than you, know, you do it. It's, it's yeah. what you do. It, there's right. not even a, right, you know, right. how do you do it? Has that been a pleasant process for you? You seem to be somebody that actually enjoys that aspect of, uh, in some ways, of I giving love, your work out I to others. I love collaborating. Yeah. Um, I love, I've always loved collaborating. And by the same token, I love being in complete control. Right. And what I really like in life 
is the balance. Mm. Um, it's why I'd love doing comics because here's me and here's an artist and a letterer and a colorist and an editor and I'm on the phone every day and I'm writing scripts and I'm doing stuff and I'm sending stuff out and I'm getting stuff back. Right. That's wonderful. Uh, writing a novel with somebody else is great because you get to talk to somebody on the phone all the day and you, you, you write and you send each other bits and you make each other laugh and that's marvelous. Um, I've just been uh, spent much of the last six months show running the Good Omens TV show. Okay. And I'm dealing with a cast of about 300 speaking parts. Wow. And a crew of several hundred and office politics at the BBC and office politics at Amazon. And I'm having to, you know, learn all these skill sets I didn't possess and, and, Meanwhile, making things go on in every different direction, and it's like running around juggling plates, you know, spinning plates and juggling them. But what's great about that is what I'm loving now is the little voice in the back of my head that says, and when this is done, you're going to write novels, and you'll go back into a nice room, and it's just going to be you. You make no compromises. You don't have to deal with things. There is no office politics because it's just you. <laughs> and you'll write your book. And yes, you'll have to deal with characters and story and getting the words out. But that's all fine. And when that's done, you know, you could write another book. And then when that's done, you'll probably start feeling like it's <laughs> time to go off and do something fun with somebody. And as long, you know, I play well with others, but... I play well with others, knowing that I can always heal on my own. Right. And by the same token, I remember writing American Gods, and it took about two years. And by the time I'd finished writing American Gods, I was no longer a social animal. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'd forgotten how to do small talk. I, <laughs> I saw my children, and I saw a screen, and that was, that was my life. I think I want to go now toward the Norse mythology, and I want to talk about um, ambivalence. That's been in your work from the beginning, this kind of razor's edge of what and who is trustworthy, how a person can shade into multiple personalities. And, and, and we get this also a great deal in Norse mythology with Loki, I guess, being kind of the, the prime version of that. Well, Loki is wonderful because he really is an enigma. He is a character more than any of the others. Odin as well is, is a right. mystery that you do not walk away from feeling that you have entirely unlocked. But Loki is, is like a scab that you pick at <laughs> and you never quite get the scab off even if you get it bleeding. He begins the stories as a kind of a sitcom character. In, in the sitcom of the right. gods, Loki's the one who says, hey, guys, I've got an idea. Why don't we do this? And all the gods go, that is a stupid idea. That would get us into trouble. <laughs> and he goes, no, it won't get us into trouble because I have a foolproof plan. Da, da, yakety yak. Right. And the gods go, oh, you've got a point. Okay, let's do that. And then when it all goes wrong, they go, whose idea was this? And Loki goes, uh, wasn't me. And they go, actually, it was you. And we'll tell you what, we're going to kill you painfully <laughs> unless you get us out of this. And Loki goes, right. And so he gets them into trouble and he gets them out of trouble. And it's great fun. And then it 
gets darker. Then he he a couple of things happen. Um, he has these children, three strange children right. with a giantess named Angraboda, and she gives birth to the Midgard serpent and to Fenris wolf, the, this giant wolf who will eat the scant sun and murder murder Odin and to hell, this, this half-living, half-dead goddess who's going to rule the world of the dead. <laughs> and then you get one which is just dark because it's the death of Baldur. Here is Baldur. Mm -hmm. He's a sun god, we presume. He is the most beautiful thing alive. And he is murdered by Loki using Hod, uh, Baldur's blind brother, right. as his instrument with a dart made of mistletoe. And now things are getting dark and weird because Loki does this thing and it's like mischief, but it's but it has real dark tragedy for the gods. And then after that, you're in just sort of the run-up to Ragnarok. Everything Loki is getting darker and darker. There's a, there's a chapter called Loki's Flighting um, in Snorri that I, I sort of retell but didn't. I, it was funny. When I set out to do Norse mythology, I, I right. was really looking forward to that as a story. I thought, oh, the great, the bit that I'm really looking forward to writing the most is Loki's flighting where he's sitting at the table and each of the gods says, Loki, you did this appalling thing. And he goes, I did this appalling thing? Well, let's right. talk about the appalling thing that you did. Ah, uh, you know, you had sex with your brother and when they threw open the door and they caught you having sex with your brother, you farted. Yeah. And, you know, and you're sort of going, okay, it's going to be great. And then... When I got to that point in the story, I actually went, oh, actually, dramatically, if I go there and do the full flighting now, the story that I'm telling gets thrown off. And I just sort of described in a paragraph him telling these appalling things and upsetting the gods, because really where I needed to go, I felt dramatically um, at that point, was following Loki into the mountains hiding from the gods and then escaping in the form of a salmon and getting caught and eventually getting dragged beneath the ground where right. he's uh, he's bound underneath the earth in the entrails of his son while his wife um, holds a bowl over his face and a serpent drops, drips of <laughs> venom uh, into the bowl and Every, it's a huge bowl, but every, when it is full, she has to empty it. And during the moments that she is away from his face, emptying the bowl, uh, the venom hits Loki's drops on his face and into his eyes, and he writhes in his bonds under the earth, and that's what makes earthquakes. These are, these are extraordinary stories, and like the Greek myths, like so many myths around the world, but not like all myths, the lack of comfort, you know, just the lack of safety, the, the fact that anything can happen, that it can go to these places, it says something about the people that made them or the world that they lived in. Absolutely. And I think both of those things are true. Um, myths tell us so much. You know, you contrast the, the myths of Greece and Rome that we're familiar with, with the Norse myths. And, and 
nobody in Norsemiths sits there naked looking at their reflection in a stream <laughs> and falling in love with themselves because it's really cold <laughs> and it's kind of miserable. And you're not, you know, these are, the, you start realizing the myths of Greece and Rome are the myths of a hospitable place running with grapes and where the weather will not kill you and where you have time to dally and run around and for nymphs and shepherds to to fornicate and all of that kind of fun stuff. There is no room for that in Norse mythology right. or not the stories that came down to us because the business of surviving and not dying is a hard business yeah. and you have you move from a world in which the nights are endless and all you live in to a world where a day is all you live in. Um, in neither of them is the world a particularly hospitable place. Right. And even today, when you start hanging around in Scandinavia, you watch the Scandinavian tendency to try and obliterate reality by using alcohol in quantities that would kill yeah. most people from other places. And you go, okay, that's all part of this thing. It's all part of that. You know, these are the, these are the places where these stories were told. They're the places they come from. And they feel like they make sense. There's, speaking of alcohol, there's this wonderful moment in, in the poetic Edda, which is, I guess, so... The Norse myths are primarily in two books, the prose Edda and the poetic Edda, and then there's there are other yep. myths as well. But um, in the poetic Edda, there's this moment. It's sort of a list of bits of wisdom, and it says that alcohol isn't as good for people as they think it is. And... You know, it's when you start drinking, it's as if a memory stealing bird has flown overhead. <laughs> I love I, the, I love the wisdom of that. There's this there, there's just it, it's filled with these glorious pieces of wisdom. I one I stole and just plonked straight down in there um, was the line, uh, you know, he said nothing. Seldom do those who are silent say the wrong thing. <laughs> right. Right. And you're going. That's true, actually. But, that, but again, it's gloriously Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah. You, you're not going to go to Italy and say, seldom are those who are silent and say <laughs> the wrong thing, because the whole thing is you gesticulate and you talk and you build up words. And there are very few silent characters in, in the world of Greek and Roman stories. That's but, right. Um, nor should there be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also suspicion. There's a lot of suspicion. I mean, in that same bit that I'm talking about in the Poetic Edda, it's basically, there's all of these, it's like, don't fully trust people. If you trust someone and they betray you, then you betray them. Yep. Like, there's a lot of tit for tat, a lot of, like, keeping score. And, and, and it was historically yeah. the way that it worked. It, it was a world in which you didn't imprison someone for murder. Right. You just made them pay. Um, you know, somebody murders your wife, you have two choices. You either murder them in return, and then somebody from their family murders somebody else in your family, and this keeps going. Or you turn around and say, actually, you know, the official price for a wife is 50 pieces of silver, and please deliver 50 pieces of silver. And they right. say, yep, sorry about that. Here's your 50 pieces of silver. And you go, good, we're now on good terms, unless I now decide to murder you and start the whole <laughs> thing again. Um, but you're in a world where 
methods of behavior are very odd. You start reading, you'd imagine from reading the Norse myths that probably people were big on, you know, manly single combat and facing their enemies in noble battle. And in fact, most things in the sagas seem to actually get resolved by people creeping up in the night and setting fire to your house, <laughs> you know, which is a much safer way of getting you, uh, getting you out of the picture. And, uh, and then you have sort of like Thor's incredible manliness on the one hand and, and kind of noble stupidity yeah. um, contrasted with Loki's sort of untrustworthy intelligence, you Absolutely. Know, both as methods of getting things done. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting in terms of who you who you trust and who you pray to <laughs> that um, Thor has hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of places named after him mm. in Scandinavia, um, in the UK, in the places where the Vikings came, they would name... They'd name towns, they'd name areas after Thor. There's almost nowhere named after Loki. Mm. You go, okay, that would have been bad luck. But like Odin, who was also pretty sneaky in his way, right? He, he, he was worshipped. He and... gets worshipped. And Odin, it's, it's, it's a sort of weirdness to Odin worship because one of the things that becomes very obvious yeah. from the beginning, from, from reading the original creation myths, is that Odin... He was one of three brothers, for example. His brothers disappear from the story almost immediately. Historically, we have um, people like Tew or Tyr, mm, um, right. who was the, an ancient Scandinavian Germanic battle god, right. who was obviously boss god at some point, and he drops away and becomes less and less important. We still have his name in Tuesday. Right. Um, but he just fades off into the background. Odin, who seems like a wise in the sense of being incredibly smart, but relatively untrustworthy God, becomes the high God and is the most important God. But I think it, it's fascinating for me, and this is just a, a sort of by the by, that when the Romans would go from place to place, right. what they tended to do was go, ah, our gods are, are your gods. We just know them by different names. <laughs> and that was, that was a very Roman way of doing things because most pantheons mapped onto other pantheons. And it's a smart administrative choice as well. Absolutely, and it's very <laughs> inclusive. Yeah. And, and the Romans were, were magnificently inclusive. Um, what fascinates me about that is Odin did not map on to Zeus, right. did not map on to Jove. Um, Odin was Mercury. Hmm. Odin, which is why, you know, Wednesday in English is Mercredi, Okay. In French, okay. um, Mercury, the the messenger of the gods, who moves around a lot in disguise and is cloaked, and from which we get the word mercurial as well. Mercurial, and is unreliable. Yeah. From where we also have the word mercurial, <laughs> right. um, is the character that the god that the Romans go, ah, that is your Odin. 
he is mm. he is our Mercury. And that again fascinates me. I, I don't have a conclusion. Yeah, I just right, have right, a, right. a No, a, that's a really, of, really interesting. Yeah, and finally, I mean, I guess the this business of Odin sacrificing himself to himself on Yggdrasil, the world tree, like that is so bizarre. I, yeah. you know, he sacrifices himself to himself in order to gain magic. I, yeah. That is just one of the most eerie and bizarre things I've ever seen. In he fiction. hangs on that tree for nine <laughs> yeah. days, and by the end of that, he has eighteen runes, nine charms, and eighteen runes, and he he. He has obtained a kind of wisdom that he's going to bring back to humanity, much like Prometheus. But in this case, he's hung there in agony yeah. and come back with knowledge. Um, and it is very, very strange. And the idea that he is a sacrifice I mean, that's to himself. Jesus echoes as well. I'm thinking of Jesus. Absolutely, there's Jesus echoes. And of course, what we don't know is how much of this stuff Christianity echoed into, um, and we can't know. You know, I, I was I was amused and slightly baffled by the occasional reviews of Norse mythology, where they would say, "Well, Gaiman, you know, doesn't really take into account." I was hoping for the pre-Christian versions of the story, hmm. and you go, "But we don't have the pre-Christian <laughs> versions of the story. Nobody went and wrote them down. A, nobody wrote them down. The stories that we get were written down a couple of hundred years after." Iceland became a Christian country. Right. Um, but also, there is an assumption that is made there. That is, that human beings did not exchange information in right. the previous thousand years. That is just wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're never sure when you're dealing with parallel evolution, the kind of thing that gives you dogs on one continent and thylacines on another continent. And when you're dealing with just dogs got to travel and they got to be dingo dogs over here and they got to be, you know, Alsatians over here and they got to be chihuahuas over here and, and because, because you can travel. Yeah. And, um, and the same goes for stories and the same goes for myths. So when you find the same story in China and in Italy, right. it could be absolute parallel evolution. Two people came up with that story. But it's also true that people were traveling backwards and forwards along the Silk Road, um, trading for thousands of years. I was in Western China once in a museum, right. and uh, they showed me the um, silks that they had from 2,000 years ago that were made to Roman designs. Mm. And there was one where they showed me and they were like, and we don't know what this is. And I said, well, it's a griffin. But it's a griffin done by somebody who didn't know <laughs> that that's a wing. Right. They're not sure what this thing is. They've been given a picture of something, but they don't know it's a wing, so they've drawn that thing. But you have Bacchus, you have essentially mass-produced silk designs being made for Roman consumption in China. Right. Um, the China and Afghanistan, Western China, you know, what would have been Turkestan and Afghanistan were where the Vikings got their best knives and weapons from. 
Right. And so and we don't think training. about that. And, and, exactly. and in some ways it's like something about the fussy far end of academic work, you know, that where that attempt to kind of separate things out, which on the one hand yields fascinating observations like, oh my God, look, this is a griffin in China, but, but taken to an extreme or maybe kind of popularized in some way, it, it, it creates these artificial borders between worlds. Well, that's the idea. That's the big problem is if you go, well, it is, it is sort of so strange. Look, people over here are telling this story and people over here are telling this story. Right. And you want to go, people travel. <laughs> and stories are always good currency wherever yeah. you go if you're a traveler. And there was no TV. There were no phones. There was no Twitter. There were no podcasts. And the nights were long. And people exchange stories. And then when you go to the next town, you take that story with you. Right. And you tell it your own way. So how much influence a thousand years of Christianity existing right. had had on these stories, we don't know. And I think this is connected with this kind of freedom that you allow yourself or this stance that you take in the writing. I mean, from Sandman to grabbing characters from throughout literature and history and mythology to sort of repurposing Odin for American gods to the way that you're telling these stories in Norse mythology. That's not something every, that's not a stance every writer takes towards stories. I mean, this idea of this kind of collective inheritance of stories that we can do what we like with. I tend to view stories as belonging to the human race. I think that humans are, one of the things that makes us fantastic is we are a storytelling, art-making race of entities. We don't get to listen to cat stories or dog stories or whale stories <laughs> or great gorilla stories, but we have human stories. And as a human, I love getting re to retell stories. And I love, if I can, getting to add to the stories that exist. You, you know what this is making me think of? Like, I remember... I remember like as a young person emerging into a sense of writing like and write you know writing poetry and sharing it with others right and and um and and just suddenly having this realization at some point that both in speech and in writing the English language was mine to do with as I pleased and so then you'd get someone pushing back on you because you were using some colloquialism or something deliberately that you had actually chosen to use and then and 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 then just knowing like no this belongs to, to me, just as it belongs to you. I, it's one of those marvelous discoveries. And, it, it's, and it's like understanding grammar. It's at the point where, you know, you grow up with people saying, well, you mustn't split infinitives. <laughs> yeah. If you split an infinitive, it means you're stupid. <laughs> uh, Star Trek going to boldly go. How can they go to boldly go? It's a spit infinitive. They should have said boldly to go or to go boldly. And then... At some point, you're an adult and you start reading up on this and you're going, hang on, you couldn't have a split infinitive because in the 17th century, a bunch of English academics decided that the rules of Latin grammar applied to English, a completely different language. Right. And in Latin, an infinitive is one word. And in English, it's two words. It's the word to 
and then to go, to love, to sing, to dance. And because that was one thing in Latin, they were like, ah, it must remain inviolate. Nothing can come between the two <laughs> and the sing. I didn't know that. And, or the two and the go. And you go, why the fuck not? <laughs> it's my language. And look, I can give you examples aplenty from the Bible, uh, the King James Bible. I can give you examples in Shakespeare. I can give you a, a, lots of examples before this became a rule. And sometimes you want to say, to boldly go. Right. You don't want to say boldly to go where no man has gone before. And that is something up with which I shall not put. Exactly. As, and you don't want to say to go boldly where no man has gone before because to boldly go actually gives you the beat that you need right. to get that little bit out. But I and, think and taking can, you, ownership of that is not something everyone does. You know, it's like it's like this, you know, same with the stories, like this permission, the sense of like it's mine. And you have to get there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then once you get there, it's it's easy and it's wonderful. <laughs> I, as I knew was going to happen, I used much more than half the time talking about all this wonderful stuff. But let us now go to the second half of the show, or, okay. which is now the second, the third quarter of the show, and um, watch one of these surprise videos that our producers have chosen for us and see where the conversation goes. From Brilliant. Here. Right. This video is uh, an interview with Barbara Oakley, who's a professor of engineering at Oakland University and the teacher of an online course called Learning How to Learn. And it's called Learning Speeds and Styles. Is your mind a hiker or a race car driver? When you're learning something new, your tendency is to think, I'm an imposter. I'm just kind of a fake, right? I'm not nearly as good as all these other people who are very far ahead of me in, in working on whatever you're, you're trying to get started working on. And this is one of the best, best traits you could have. Embrace your inner imposter. Because what the imposter syndrome does, that feeling that you're a fake and you're not as good as everyone else, is it allows you to open your beginner's mind. So you start looking at things with a more open and receptive way because, well, part of it is you're really unsure of yourself. And so you're really paying attention and really listening. People who approach a new discipline with, you know, I'm just really confident I can do this, which is often the message we hear from society. You should be confident about yourself and your skills and so forth. It can close you off to sort of correcting your mistakes and being humble and approaching things almost from a lower perspective or a, a, a lower start than you might think you have to start at. Just because if you start really low, really humble, you really get the background that you, you need in order to excel and achieve at whatever you want to excel and achieve at. When it comes to learning something, there, it almost seems like there's two types of learners. One of them is what I might term a, a race car learner. They've got these race car brains that get there really fast. And the other is more like a hiker. A hiker gets to the finish line, but much, much more slowly. Think about it this way. You know, it's depressing if you're a slow thinker 
to, to look at these fast thinkers, race car brains, and, and realize they can get anywhere much more quickly than you. But think about what a hiker experiences as opposed to the race car driver. The race car driver moves really fast, gets to the finish line. Everything's a blur. The hiker can reach out, they can touch the leaves on the trees, they can see the little rabbit trails, they can smell the air, hear the birds, completely different experience and in some ways far richer and deeper. So it can help you sometimes. If you're a slow thinker, you think, oh, there's nothing in it for me, I'm not as fast as these other people, you can sometimes see things that those really, really fast thinkers miss just because you're looking more deeply. Right. Um, are you a race car learner or a... Hiker. Hiker, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm definitely an imposter. So let's, let's, <laughs> let's put that card down on the table right at the beginning. I mean, that, that's one of those things that absolutely never goes away. I spent much of, um, much of my career convinced that sooner or later there will be a knock on the door and I go and open it and there would be somebody with a clipboard. And they'd say, Neil Gaiman? And I'd say, yes. They'd say, ah, oh, well, I'm afraid you have to get a real job now. <laughs> and I would go, oh, okay. And because once they've caught you, you have to go and get a real job. And I would go into hotel administration or accountancy or something and, and just be sad because they would have caught me because I was an imposter. Um, you, so you still feel that? I still feel that. I feel it less since I won the Newbury Medal. Huh. The Newbury Medal in 2008, there's hmm. a kind of thing where I felt like I wasn't allowed to have the kind of level of imposter syndrome that I'd had before then <laughs> because it reeked of a sort of false humility at the point where they'd given you the Newbury and the, I, I got the Newbury and the Carnegie Medal for the Graveyard Book. It's kind of like, look, if I, if I keep going, I am an imposter. And you're responsible to children at that point. So you, you, you better be what you are. You right? kind of better be. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, there's a story that I've, I've told before, but I will tell you because yeah. it is perfect and it is true about the whole imposter syndrome thing, um, which is about six, seven years ago, I was um, at a very fancy event. And uh, I've been there for a few days. There were a lot of people, there were Nobel Prize winners, there were writers whose work I had admired, Pulitzer people, and, and there were also scientists, and there were all sorts of, you know, people who I knew and had not known before, just knew by their faces and names, and here I am walking amongst them. Hmm. And um, one of them, um, an elderly gentleman, who had already given a, a, a talk about you know his areas of speciality, and I had run into each other. We had a long chat, well, sort of short, funny chat about our, our shared first name and the weirdnesses of Google and things like that. And on the Saturday night, I'm just standing in a corner looking at all these people, and I'm thinking, I am a fake. I do not. <laughs> belong to be here. These are real people. And just as I'm thinking that, the elderly gentleman 
sidles over next to me and he looks at them and he says, you look at all these people. And I just think, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> he didn't say hell. He said, what the heck am I doing here? And you know, what am, what am I doing? How do I qualify to be here? He said, they, they all did amazing things. And I was just an errand boy. And I said, you were the first man on the moon, Neil. I think that counts <laughs> for something. Wow. And I thought, you know, the truth is, if Neil Armstrong can feel like a fake and a fraud and an imposter surrounded by people, and the only thing that everybody at that gathering was certain of was that it was an honor having Neil Armstrong talk to us about the first moon landing. The, I, I had a sudden moment of going, there's nobody here who isn't an imposter. There aren't any real people. We're all fakes getting by, and that's just fine. But I guess then what that makes me wonder is like, what the hell is wrong with us? Like, why, why are we, why must we feel that way? I mean, especially if we're doing honest and honorable things, you know, what, what, does that keep us honest or something? You know, I think you can turn it upside down and it gets much more interesting, which is what is wrong with the people who don't have imposter syndrome? Hmm. You know, you look at Donald Trump's Twitter feed and you're going, this is somebody who actually believes they are the best person <laughs> for the job, the best person in the world. Like, like, you know, Warty Bliggins the Toad in Don Marquis's poem convinced that the, the earth was put here <laughs> to give a beautiful platform for Donald Trump to stand on and be the president. There is no, I don't think he go, he looks around going, what the hell am I doing here? And, and I would worry about that. I actually think that when she talked and that thing about imposter syndrome being the thing that allows us to learn, hmm. allows us to go, I don't know everything. Right. Therefore, I need to keep learning. I need to keep my mind open. I need to find out what I don't learn, what I don't know and to learn it. I need, I'm not there yet is a great place to be. And I honestly, I think the truth is, am I a, am I a race car driver or a hiker? <laughs> Depends. Yeah. Depends on what the thing is. There are some things where I'm absolutely a hiker. There are some things where I'm absolutely a race car driver. There are some things where I'm a hitchhiker and some things where I'm a bicyclist in terms of how I learn right. and the speed of learning. But what matters is what she said at the beginning for me, which is you need to keep learning. You need the humility right. to know that there are things that you do not know. And then the speed that you get to the information um, is almost irrelevant as long as you know you do not know and you are willing to keep going. I'm going to keep harping on this and I'm going to say why... Why is humility with respect to what you don't know? Why does that require imposter syndrome? It's the, I don't know that it requires <laughs> it. I've I've never seen it linked before, but I enjoy, I mean I feel I mean, it too. I'm just you know you know I I mean I enjoy I really enjoyed her pointing that out and, yeah, it, yeah. and it felt true, but it felt true in those way that that things in in videos often feel true. You'd go, was that a huge, profound truth? Or was that just something that sounded good? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm not trying to I, like pin I, her I, down. I'm no, just saying and I, and I don't in real know, life. But, but like, in real life, it feels to me like what is true is that 
in every profession, in every branch of the arts, in every branch of the sciences. Um, you keep learning right. until you fossilize, mm -hmm. until you turn to stone, until there is no room for change. And at the moment where you have petrified, <laughs> at the moment where you have become the thing you are, you're kind of doomed because new right. ideas are no longer welcome. And whether you're an artist or a doctor, whether you're a, a scientist or a poet, at the moment that new ideas are not welcome, at the moment where this is what I do and it's all I do, that's when you start dying. So I would much rather deal with somebody who, whether, whether it's imposter syndrome is important or not, but what is important I think is the humility. What is important is knowing that there's stuff you don't know. And you know, the weirdness for me is I've been a professional writer now for 35 years. Hmm. That's how I've been earning my, my living. And I know a lot of stuff. And I also know how much I don't know. So I'm sure I can be really irritating to people <laughs> who are just starting out and going, well, what about this? And I go, ah, oh, that's easy. That's one of these, that's one of these. And it looks like I've got it all down. But I'm reminded of Will Eisner. Will, when I met him, was in his 80s or late 70s. Okay. Um, and Will was the creator of the spirit of a book called Contract with God. He had been doing comics in the late 30s. Um, and I would talk to Will and I'd say, Will, you know, we've come up with this great idea about comics. We could do this, 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 and this. And Will would say, well, you know, when we tried that in 1942, the reason it didn't work. <laughs> and, it was, and it was never like you were being stopped. What was great was he was actually saying, look, here is my wisdom because I've been doing this stuff a lot longer than you. And this is what I've learned. And I remember asking him at the Chicago Humanities Festival. I got to interview him in 2004, 2005, something like that. And I said to him, well, what, what keeps you going? You know, you are still creating new work every year when most of your, create, your, your contemporaries have long, long since retired or are dead. What, what keeps you going? And he said, I saw a film when I was a young man about a jazz musician who was seeking the note. And he knew that if he just kept going, one day he would play the note. <laughs> and he said, and that's what it is for me. He said, I haven't played it yet, but if I just keep going, one day I'll play the note. And he was 82, 83 at this point. And I look at that and I go, that's, that's who I want to be. I don't ever want to go, oh, you know, I've done it all. I want to be one of those people who goes, you know, if, I, if I'm really lucky, maybe next time I'll get it right. And, uh, and that brings us to the end of our time together. Um, oh, Neil Gaiman, wonderful, thank you so much. I very much enjoyed this. Um, thanks thank for you. being here. Thank you so much. So I have been at Big Think since 2010, and pretty much all of that time 
every time Neil Gaiman wrote a book, I've been trying to invite him here. And I'm really glad that it didn't happen until now. Now that this podcast has a couple years under its belt and we could have the kind of conversation that you just heard. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, find us on Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. That's a private group. Request to join and I'll let you in. And we'll be back next week with something completely different.